0: There's plenty of other effective models in investing. I'm an LP and some funds that make many more investments and play a little bit more reactive role. And some of them do an absolute amazing job, both for the entrepreneurs and for their LPs. I do think we run a very good version of our playbook and that companies at the early stage do benefit from having a lead or co-lead institutional investor who can be with them, you know, especially for those first three to five years.
1: From 2003 Media, this is The Ones Who Succeed. I'm Campbell Barron, welcome to the program.
0: My name is Hunter Walk. I'm half of an early stage venture fund called Homebrew. We're out here in the Bay Area and started about eight years ago, founded by myself and a friend and former colleague, Sacha Patel. We had met at Google a bunch of years ago where I spent about a decade most recently managing product at YouTube.
1: Today on the show, I'm thrilled to have a conversation with Hunter Walk. And Hunter is one of my all-time favorite investors. He's a co-founder and managing partner of Homebrew, which is an early stage venture firm that boasts a portfolio including the likes of Chime, Anchor, Cruise, Cheddar, and the one and only Stir. However, if you take a closer look at Homebrew, you'll notice that they're very focused. In fact, the firm only makes tens of investments a year, not hundreds. And that means that they are able to support their portfolio companies, not just with capital, but with time. Hunter, based in San Francisco, joined this program via Zoom to discuss the inception of Homebrew, navigating hype cycles as a venture capitalist, and why when Hunter and Homebrew make selective bets, founder market fit is mission critical. That's right ahead. My conversation with Hunter Walk starts now. Well, Hunter, I appreciate you taking the time to chat
0: yeah thanks so much for having me on i know that you've had the chance to interview some of my friends and i'm ready now i'm ready for the experience
1: well some of your friends spoke very highly of you and i very much respect your work and venture and startups and so i'm thrilled to have the opportunity to chat now walk me through how you ended up in your position what did your life look like right before you started homebrew
0: yeah well it's funny because i was preparing at least mentally <laughs> to leave Google regardless. I it had been a great run. Started there on the AdSense team and then moved over to YouTube after the acquisition, but after, you know, approaching a decade, I sort of faced a question. You know, I said, look, this is never going to be a bad place. Like Google's there's always going to be interesting work to do. But do I want this to be my last job? And if the answer to that is no, then like what am I waiting for? There's always another interesting project, always another, you know, financial incentive, but at some point you just have to decide to step away. And so I was going to leave, and then take 2013 to kind of work on some side project, continue to angel invest, so on and so forth. But my friend Sacha, who had been running product at Twitter at the time, decided to leave there, and all of a sudden, after you know six, seven years of saying, "Let's do something together," "Let's do something together," "Let's do something together," we had that moment where it was actually a blank, piece, you know, a blank piece of paper. Not mm-hmm. one of us just trying to convince the other person, and so that started the conversation that led to Homebrew.
1: In 2021, I would say the venture capital landscape, among many other things, seems very loud. How would you describe uh, the venture capital landscape in 2013?
0: Yeah. So I think you know, in some ways, in 2013, if I had to say, let's say what, it's eight years, right? So was 2013 more similar to 2021 or 2005, right? That would be mm-hmm. minus eight years. Mm-hmm. And even though it's changed a lot, I'd say it's more similar to today than 2005, because there, I think we were part of a generation, you know, new VCs that had come from operating backgrounds and folks who disproportionately come from operating backgrounds, I think have a mentality and disposition that's a little bit different than folks who maybe come from, you know, finance or legal, you know, and we like to, we like to build collaboratively. We like to build publicly and we like to share and learn from one another. And so, an industry that had been pretty kind of opaque, black box, you know, Sandhill Road, you knew people or you didn't know people, for a number of reasons. I'm not saying that the sort of change in personnel was the only reason, but for a number of reasons, I think became more open, more transparent, more authentic. At the same time, you know, for a number of other reasons, it's become, like you said, louder maybe more competitive, certainly more options than ever for entrepreneurs who are seeking risk capital. And I think regardless, that's that's a great outcome.
1: So you're thinking in around this period of time was because you had operating experience at Google, you and you know, many other VCs, Chris Saka, I had him on the program. He also came from mm-hmm. Google. Like your thinking was because you had operating experience and you weren't necessarily an investment banker or a lawyer in your past life, you could essentially empathize with the founder. And that would just further your connection, your ability to assess companies.
0: Yeah, look, I think every, I think it's important for any good investor to run their own playbook. For some people, you know, that's going to be, you know, very focused on a very particular skill set. Maybe it's somebody who, you know, does come from like an investing background, and they're very focused on, you know, sort of, you know, growth stage investing, where it's a lot of analysis and spreadsheets, and is this the last round before liquidity? You know, that type of stuff. I think for earlier stage investors, it definitely helps to have empathy for the building process, and that's one thing that I, I think you can. Can remain evergreen, right? Like, I'd hesitate to say that, oh, the reason I'm a great investor or a great partner to entrepreneurs is because, you know, 15 years ago, I did, I helped create this one feature. And so, like, that, you know, that exact process or that exact feature was so, you know, influential that now that makes me a good investor. I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of bull. I do think though that being you know in and alongside teams at all different stages, you know, having worked at startups and having also worked at you know companies that got quite large, you do develop a sort of a you know a muscle for what it feels like to be building things. And I, I think at least part of my playbook is you know using using those skills to help entrepreneurs you know find their own groove in that seed to series A stage. I'm saying, this is the type of company we are. This is the problem we're solving. This is the product we're building to solve that problem. And this is the team and culture that I'm assembling, you know, to help move this forward. And, and I think that's a lot of, you know, playing that sort of assistance is a lot of our job.
1: In 2021, venture capital is very competitive, like you mentioned. Now, there were quite a few venture capitalists back in 2013, too. You mentioned it feels more like 2021 than 2005. And as a result, how do you go about finding high-quality deal flow when you were just starting out? And you, you don't necessarily have the Andreessen brand yet or the Sequoia yeah. brand.
0: Well, the amazing thing, especially at early stage, is you know high-quality is a little bit more nebulous a concept than a company that's already been operating for you know three, five, seven years and growing very quickly. In those cases, I think you're really trying to sort of price the company rather than figure out if it's high quality or not. So I'd say it's it's much like a product. It's knowing who your product is aimed at, making sure those people know about your product, understand your product, and prefer your product to other choices they have. From very early on, we decided that homebrew was going to be you know, about the intersection of a few things. It was going to be about staying small and focused and concentrated at early stage. So we should appeal to entrepreneurs who who do believe that the kind of investors they want during their earliest years aren't necessarily the same investors who they ask into their round in year seven, year 12, so on and so forth, that they want somebody who focuses exclusively at their stage and whose own strategy keeping the fund size relatively modest, aligns their interests, the founders' interests with the investors' interests in a different way than you know potentially a billion-dollar fund and the type of outcomes in a type of timeframe they need. And that's mm-hmm. not to say we're not swinging for the same types of exciting results. We want the most ambitious founders out there. But I think we can help those founders play offense without having to commit to a timeline, a posture, right. um, a ramp that forces them to do unnatural things. The second thing is, do they want somebody who's, you know, been an operator before, or do they want somebody who, you know, hasn't, right? And not just, you know, two years of project experience at a startup nobody really heard of, but, you know, between Satcha and myself, you know, 20 plus years of real meaningful experience at different companies, very specific timeframes where we played leadership roles. And then the third would be, do you want your cap table, or do you want at least you know, a lead or co-lead investor like ourselves to be a true partner to you. And hopefully that means to be proactively useful, not just reactively. So by making just eight to 10 investments a year, we're really spending, you know, the majority of our time with the companies we back. We clear at least, you know, 51% of our calendar, you know, to spend time with the people we back. So we actually work even harder to service the deal than we do to win it. The intersection of those three things amongst all the choices that people have for capital is actually I, I, you know, unique is 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 a tough word to use, but it's pretty differentiated. And so most of the competition we have found has grown in the larger and larger and larger funds, wanting to invest earlier, earlier, and earlier. And lots of wonderful individuals, entrepreneurs, smaller funds who are you know, writing 30, 40, 50 checks a year, smaller checks, mm-hmm. and incredibly helpful, but a little bit more reactive just because of their model. And so I think the most important thing for us has been is that playbook still correct in 2021? You know, I've obviously, hopefully, we've gotten better at it over the years. Are we communicating that well to entrepreneurs? There's always a generation gap, right? So now you have people coming out of, you know, coming out of Stripe, coming out of Slack, who maybe we didn't work with, you know, on the front lines. Whereas, you know, in 2013, maybe we were funding people who we actually worked with, you know, during our Google and Twitter years. And then third, does it still work for us? Like, does it still bring us joy? And the answer to that is. Clearly, yes. Like, what we love is the time with the people, with the founders, with their teams. You know, in some ways, like the, you know, the escalating valuations and the fast pace for next pace of things is less exciting to me, you know, like it's not that I would say I want a downturn, you know, but like I, I really like when there's, you know, the chance to find and work with people and get to know them. We might hold equity in an LLC, I guess technically that's what we do as investors, but what we're really committing to is do we want to get up every day and put sweat and reputation behind these people? I think that's what an investment is about.
1: So you believe that the core part of your job as, you know, a partner at Homebrew is not really necessarily just making the initial investment, set it and forget it, spray and pray, if you will. Your job is to service the companies you invest in and be as helpful as possible. Coming up, I continue my conversation with Hunter Walk. The Ones Who Succeed will be right back after this. Stay with us. This is The Ones Who Succeed, I'm Campbell Barron. your job is to service the companies you invest in and be as helpful as possible.
0: That's our job because that's our product, right? There's plenty of other effective models in investing. I'm an LP in some funds that make many more investments and play a little bit more reactive role. And some of them do an absolute amazing job, both for the entrepreneurs and for their LPs. So I do think that you can be a successful investor running a good version of any of these playbooks. I don't think what we do is necessarily better or worse than somebody else. I do think we run a very good version of our playbook and that companies at the early stage do benefit from having a lead or co-lead institutional investor who can be with them, you know, especially for those first three to five years. I think C to series B is where we put in kind of most of our time. We're obviously long-term investors. We're long-term greedy. We continue to work with that company forever. But if I had to pick where I think we're most differentiated, it's like seed to series B. We want to get you from this could work to this is working to holy cow. (laughs) Now, how do I make it even bigger than I thought it could be? And those are the phases where I think we're most useful.
1: How do you know if you'd be a good investor if you don't have access to capital, but you are interested in the space?
0: I think the first thing is I think there's two questions. The first is, do you realize what it actually means to be a good investor? So people sometimes say, come to me like, oh, I I love I love thinking about different ideas or I love working with founders on whiteboards. Like that's all wonderful. If you want to be a good investor, you know, tell me you want to be an investment manager and a salesperson, right? Like it's more like you know, (laughs) the idea of if you are managing other people's money and if you're being an investor, you can never forget that you're an investment manager and a salesperson. That may not be exclusively the reason you do the job. It's certainly not the reason I do the job, but it's very much a part of being able to do the job well mm-hmm. and do the job for a long period of time. So first, understand what it means. The second, I'd say, is understand why you want to do it. Do you want to do it because you know you think you can do something particular that helps you know, founders that they're not having access to right now? Do you think that you have an eye for seeing talent and opportunity ahead of others? So you're going to be investing earlier than maybe current people are in a particular area. You're going to, you know, beat me to market type of thing. If you are, if you don't have answers to that, I think then you're kind of undifferentiated and you're, and you still may be good at it, but like, it's not as clear to me that you can sort of articulate what you're doing. I was glad and I had the opportunity to get a few reps, you know, as an angel investor, Which I wasn't trying to optimize for returns. I wasn't trying to just get into the hottest companies. I was trying to scratch an intellectual itch as well as support my friends. And it helped me learn some things as well as like I'd call it make some mistakes with smaller checks as opposed to the larger checks I write now. So even if you don't have a ton of capital, whether it's, you know, just finding people and trying to become an advisor, just trying to help them out, like do some sort of picking where you're putting kind of, you know, sweat, if not capital against it. And you'll start to learn about, you know, how, how good you are in sensing whether somebody and, and some company has opportunity and, you know, whether you can be useful along the way.
1: One of the things they say about angel investing, in particular, is that usually, you know, you if you have access to capital that you earn yourself, and you decide to invest in a portfolio of companies, it is a very expensive hobby if it doesn't work out, and it is yeah. a, a hobby that also takes a long time to figure out that you're bad at. Yeah. Generally, right? Because you well, can't. actually,
0: you figure out you you are bad at it right away because like your things that fair. fail fail, and so you know somebody once told me your lemons ripen before your cherries, so it's a long time before you can prove you're good at it. I, sure, I, fair. I made. I was doing it during like my last four or five years at Google where I was Mm -hmm. making four or five investments a year. And I was, I went in with the mentality of if I lose all of this money, I should stop doing it, but I won't know that for four or five years. And if I'm okay at it and I enjoy it, I'll just keep doing it. And it was mostly because I was so focused on YouTube. I wanted to learn about other areas that weren't like, you know, video specific at the time. So I invested in commerce. I invested in developer tools. I invested in, you know, SaaS, like that type of stuff.
1: Are there ways you can become a better investor or is it kind of just you have it or you don't?
0: Oh, I definitely think you can become a better investor. I mean, we spend time at different cycles, I me, mean, Sacha and myself, looking at each others and trying to give feedback, looking at the collective decisions we make. Because in some ways, I think we have taken the mentality of each fund, if we can just make one better investment each fund. So like fund one happens to be a very good fund, but you know, let's just say my goal for fund two is to make one better investment than fund one and fund three make one better investment than fund two. What sort of false positives, false negatives, what sort of things can we look at that weren't just aberrations, but were patterns? That if we can correct that pattern, will increase the probability of us getting to one better investment. Now that's we can take a sort of specific view of that because I think our overall thesis is correct and we're you know, have seemed to be good enough to sort of now go into tuning. If we were like completely failing and we have to sort of step back and be like the market doesn't want our product, maybe we need to rethink what our product is, and that would be sort of a different type of discussion. I think there's lots of lots of ways to improve, you know, it just I think it's it's one of those things where it's tough to boil the ocean. It's more important to, you know, along like the am I seeing good investments? Am I being a good picker? Am I winning those deals? And then am I living up to slash exceeding the expectations I set with those founders and eventually getting a return? Like pick which of those you want to focus on or pick one thing you want to do better at at each of that part of the funnel and be very deliberate about it. I think you can't just throw up your hands and be like, oh, I, I, you know, I need to be a better investor. You know, let me continue to do what I do, but just with some exclamation points.
1: Right. Yeah. Adding, adding money to your, to your portfolio might not solve the problem.
0: That's why i always tell people who are you know investing either as angels or especially if they have a first small fund like worry less about ownership uh and parada and type of stuff and just worry about the quality of your picking because if you know if you've picked good companies but get diluted over time so and so forth like you'll be able to raise larger and larger funds people will believe that like wow Look, you put a few hundred thousand dollars to work and, and yeah. it did really well. And if you had been able to mm-hmm. put more money into those companies and they said they would have taken more money from you when we do our diligence, like that's great. But nobody's gonna nobody's gonna believe that with more money you'd become a better picker.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I want to uh, pivot over to some of your, the specific investments you've made. Looking at your portfolio, the homebrew portfolio, it seems that most of the companies you fund are technology companies. However, I, I would argue that there are a couple of exceptions there. And, you know, obviously technology plays into the underlying components of all of your portfolio companies. But two in particular that I really, really am fans of, The Skim and Cheddar, seem to definitely be a tech you know, media hybrid. And I want to f- touch on those two companies because for the most part, it seems that media companies get a bad rap in Silicon Valley, that there's this stereotype that they're kind of notoriously unprofitable and they require a lot of capital and they're not as necessarily lucrative as, as tech investments. And I'm, I'm curious why or how you justified those two investments and um, what your thought is on that stereotype. All right, we're going to take one last quick break and we'll be right back with Hunter Walk, co-founder of Homebrew. That's right ahead on The Ones Who Succeed. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Ones Who Succeed, I'm Campbell Barron. For the most part, it seems that media companies get a bad rap in Silicon Valley, that there's this stereotype that they're kind of notoriously unprofitable and they require a lot of capital and they're not as necessarily lucrative as as tech investments. And I'm I'm curious why or how you justified those two investments and um, what your thought is on that stereotype.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right to point out that the majority of our portfolio is creating technology IP, but there's others that leverage both their own software and other general trends of technology to do things that before might not have been possible. You know, mm-hmm. In Skim's case, it was starting out as a two-person media company that was already reaching millions of women, well, when we invested tens of thousands, but you know, scaled to, to millions and millions. I, I think you're right in the sense that If you look at every company and assume its P&L is going to look like a software company when it's not a software company, that's a recipe for disaster. Those companies tend to get overfunded and underperform, or they tend to be asked to do things that are not natural for what they are. But if you look at them as sort of, how is technology allowing us to to do something unique and to have sort of the best P&L in our business? In the Skims case, incredibly low production costs initially from a fixed cost perspective compared to like spinning up an NBC right or something like that, Mm -hmm. doing... that sort of reporting and using originally a mailchimp account you know to send out emails and stuff like that you know so they were they were saying look there's this inbox there's people called email people want to wake up with us we can rethink what the morning show looks like to make it a newsletter and Cheddar's case it was very much, you know, sort of as opposed to if Cheddar had wanted to exist 20 years ago, would have had to go knock on the doors of a few different cable providers and figure out how to how to get carried now with over the top. And of course, they did a ton of partnerships, but like fundamentally, they could reach consumers just by streaming. And so in both cases, we knew that it was great founder market fit. Carly and Danielle at the skim John at Cheddar exactly the right people to be building those businesses. We knew that they were building something that was more than just transactional. They were building brand and community. And we also knew that they were going to be good managers of their business. And so this game, which is still an independent entity, has been growing and controls its own destiny, essentially, right? So it, it didn't get too far out over its skis from a valuation or funding standpoint, which goes back to sort of like understanding what you are. Mm-hmm. In that case, also, we decided that as investors, you know we knew normally target 10 to 15 percent ownership with our first check. We ended up owning a little bit more of the skimp because we knew that. We didn't want to have to, as investors, try to force it into a software multiple, right? So right. like people sort of say, you know, oh, this re- you a know, hundred times revenue for a SaaS company. Well, like media companies don't get a hundred times revenue, right? So if it's four times revenue, seven times revenue, 10 times revenue, we wanted to make sure that it could still return the fund for us. In Cheddar's case, we knew John from the Google days, and he's just a ferocious operator, would back him doing anything. And we knew that besides having a sense of what he was building, he would have a, a sense of exit. He'd know when it would be time to get out and so they had a great offer sold made everybody money and he ended up taking you know a big role at the acquirer now you know sort of you know imagining what news looks like for the future and so in both cases it always starts with the founders and then it starts with like well do we believe what they believe and can we be right or wrong together and so both of those you know skim will skim will soon you know or eventually be profitable for us and, and and cheddar was a nice return
1: would you fund another media company and and if so what would the parameters be
0: yeah, I'm always interested. You know, there's, I think there's lots, of, it depends on your definition of media, right? So I'm very interested in mid long tail distributed media, which you can kind of think of as, you know, niches. You can think of as, you know, maybe influencer or creator. I'm more interested, I'd say, in subscription than advertising. So I like when people are creating content that somebody's willing to pay for, even if they're not charging yet at some stages. And I'm also interested in people who are thinking about start with one medium, but it can create brands that can cross over, right? So for example, people have pitched me a ton of podcasts Stuff. I don't know if I want to invest in a podcast studio, right? I think those have exited mostly great for early investors, not really venture outcomes. Now, if you said, Hey, we're building the best content brand for pick a niche, people who love model trainings. And, you know, it's going to start, we, we already have 500,000 people watching these videos. And next, what we're going to do is some podcasts, and then we're going to make a marketplace and there's going to be a commerce component. Building a and like, great. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so I think I tend to like, you know, sort of people who are going after very specific interest groups or very specific, particular demographics,
1: One of the uh, investments you made is in a company called Stir, which I'm a big fan of, and I think Joe's a fantastic operator. But I I bring this up because Stir went into this creator economy space in and around the summer, before that, Mm -hmm. but really in and around the summer. And since then, the two-word creator economy have exploded um yeah. and it, creator economy is now i think maybe perhaps in a little bit of a hype cycle in silicon valley and that's difficult i would imagine as an investor because you were you got in kind of early but now i'm i'm sure you've been pitched many creator economy startups since then and so how do you navigate a hype cycle especially when you have a portfolio company like stir already in, in your portfolio
0: yeah that's great great question so stir i sometimes describe them as like square If Square were designed for creators as opposed to coffee shops. So, you know, it's a mix of, you know, analytics and financial tools to help creators run their business. Well, fortunately, the creator economy is not new for me, right? So, Second Life, AdSense, YouTube, I've sort of been living in the creator economy for all of my operating career and was really waiting for the moment where I thought that we had a large enough market, a large enough set of creators that would have the need for platform tools and the right founders. And we were lucky to find them in Joan Cushell. I think the hardest thing for me in a space when I make an early investment is you know, we really try to give our founders room to run, especially those first few years. So it doesn't, for example, preclude me making any other investments in the creator space, but I really want to make sure that they have enough time and energy to figure out who they are. You know, if they told me, Hey, 20 years from now, we're going to, you know, start making production studios. So don't invest in anybody who wants to do, you know, we work for creator studios. I'd say, look, guys, that's 20 years from now, you have that nowhere on the roadmap. If I'm excited about that, I don't think it's fair for you to say, don't do that. Mm-hmm. But if there's something on their roadmap or something adjacent or something, and they're thinking about, like, I'm probably going to give them room to run. So there's definitely been, and that's one of the trade-offs in a concentrated model. There have been times that we have been right about the market, wrong about the company. We made an investment too early and that blocked us out. Even if the founders didn't care, it sort of, you know, in our mind blocked us out from making Mm -hmm. another investment right away in the same vertical. And so, you know, you sort of have to be thoughtful about that and just be really excited about what you're doing. So my message to Joe and Kushal are like, there's going to be a ton of noise around you, just stay focused. You know, my message to Satya and myself is like, this is a big enough space where there's going to be multiple companies that we can participate in. But right now, if you're building kind of financial tools and, you know, analytics tools for creators, like I might not be able to make another investment right away
1: a few more questions here before we wrap up. Uh, speaking sure. of hype cycles, a Homebrew is based in San Francisco during COVID and then eventually post-COVID world. Cities have been a very talked about topic among Twitter and, and VCs and the startup community. How do you look at the future of San Francisco? Are you thinking about leaving the city? Or are you long SF? Yeah. Where do you fall in that spectrum?
0: So I'm an East Coast guy who moved out here in 98. My wife moved out here in 95. So we're, we're definitely locals, if not natives. We're raising our family here in the city, and we have no plans to leave. I do think, separate from any of the questions about who's moved to Miami or Austin or Denver, I, I do think San Francisco has, throughout my time here, has been unable to resolve its own internal conflict about growth versus equity, right? Some notion of you have to solve, make sure that there's there's no trade-offs and solve every problem before you can do anything. And like that's a real tough challenge. And so I, I'm getting in, more involved in trying to help the city, you know, sort of figure that stuff out because it's important to me that the place I live, you know, continues to grow and thrive for all people. That being said, I think the fact that there's some people moving out means that there's also some people moving in. And so I think it's great on both accounts. And it's amazing that we're starting, you know, accelerated by the last year, experimenting with different types of remote, distributed and hybrid work situations where your ability to, join a company and apply your skills to that company is not first and foremost limited by where you've chosen to live. I was here, you know, I came out in 98. So I got to see web one burst, you know, in, in 2000, 2001, I got to see people leave then. And then I got to see the incredible creativity that came after that. Same sort of thing, 2008, 2009, financial crisis. I got to see when people leave. And I got to see then, you know, sort of the rise of amazing companies founded in the years subsequent. So I think California in general sort of formed on boom and bust cycles, like we'll continue to see that. And it's going to be a rise of the rest more so than a uh, death knell for the Bay Area. Uh,
1: and my last question here, the, the tagline to your blog is 99% humble, 1% brag. You've stayed pretty humble during this interview. So I figured I would give you the last question no. to flex a little bit.
0: Oh, well, you know, I, I'm really good at making coffee. I have tuned that a lot. No, I mean, look, Homebrew is named after the Homebrew Computer Club of the '70s and '80s, where PC enthusiasts, you know, met on Stanford's campus. That's where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak met. So you can say it's sort of the progenitor of Apple. We name that way because we think we're always so focused, you know, as a community right now on disruption and what's next, so and so forth. But we stand on the shoulders of what came before us, and so we want to pay that forward. And so, you know, the 99% humble isn't just because like I have humility. It's because I think it's an important quality for our ecosystem. Um, one percent brag, like I'm fully confident that I think between Satya and myself, you have two people who've led product at billion user, multi-billion dollar companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had the chance in my career to see sort of slightly around corners, working early on virtual world, virtual currency, creator economy, all that type of stuff. And at least our first fund so far, you know, we're far enough in, first fund's a screamer, right? So it's got amazing companies, Plaid, Cruise, Chime, Gusto, Honor, Weave, a bunch of things that we're really, really proud to be associated with. So I stand with a degree of confidence, but also a belief that we have to sort of be the values that we want to see carried forward. So I'm probably, I'm too socially, well, I'm too socio emotional, well-adjusted to ever be a billionaire, but otherwise I think we can do a lot of good work for, for the founders that we're fortunate enough to back.
1: Hunter, I really appreciate your time. Great to talk to you
0: thanks yeah a real pleasure people can find me at almost any social space at hunter walk and we are one of the people who doesn't mind cold emails so feel free to pitch us always hunter at homebrew.co that's hunter walk one of
1: the ones who succeed thanks for listening enjoyed the show it would be amazing if you could leave us a review on apple Podcasts. it really helps us out or why not tell a friend that also helps new listeners discover the show i really appreciate it as for me i'm at campbell j barron on twitter instagram and tiktok you can follow me there if you want to hear what i have to say and with that you've made it to the end of the show thanks for listening i'm your host campbell barron and i'll see you next week